So we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 6 tonight. Tonight we're going to talk about anxiety and worry. The real Jesus cares about anxiety and worry. You may think that He just cares about religious stuff. He cares about the stuff that's going on in your life, particularly anxiety and worry. Now in the years that I've been doing college ministry, I feel like anxiety and panic disorders and these sorts of things are on the rise. More so than 10, 15, 20 years ago. David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times that I really enjoy, and a writer who's authored several books, which I think are pretty helpful in thinking about our cultural moment, uh, wrote an essay. It came out about 10 years ago, but I still think it's pretty relevant it's called Love and Success at America's Finest Universities. I'm not going to get into the, the love and hooking up part of the article, but the first part of the article I think is important to listen to when you think about anxiety and worry. He says, I spent a lot of time on elite college campuses recently at Yale, where I taught a course, as well as Princeton, Dartmouth, Kenyon, and a few less rarefied schools, like Belmont. No, he, I don't think he's ever been to Belmont. But he could. You've had Obama you know, come to Belmont, so who knows who could come. He says, while I've temporarily given up on the game of trying to diagnose the ills of America's youth, I have found that things are really different than they were when I graduated about 20 years ago. For one thing, the students in the competitive colleges are products of an almost crystalline meritocracy. By meritocracy, he means a society where your merit determines your social status, as opposed to an aristocratic an aristocratic kind of society. He says they grew up from birth, being shepherded from one skill-enhancing activity to another. When you read their resumes, you learn that they got straight A's in high school and stratospheric board scores. They've usually started a few companies, cured at least three formerly fatal diseases, mastered a half dozen or so languages, and marched for breast cancer awareness through Tibet while tutoring the locals on conflict resolution skills and environmental awareness. So he's poking fun a little bit. But it is hard to not be impressed. If you're somebody that went to school like when I did, it's hard not to be impressed by college students. But if you get to know college students, you find the dark side of this, which is crippling anxiety and worry and panic. Jesus understands this. It's a real problem in our day, maybe worse than it was 10 to 20 years ago. But it was a real problem in Jesus' day as well. And he deals with it. And I love this passage because Jesus is dealing with the situations and the struggles of ordinary people. I don't know if you think about Jesus and you think you know, your problems are too ordinary for him, that he's got much more important things to worry about. And honestly, one of the challenges of living at our time in world history is you know a lot more about the big problems. And you probably have less ability to impact all the things that you know about. I mean, you can like it on Facebook. You know, you can sign a petition and hope that it goes somewhere and matters. Right? But we know about so many huge things that sometimes we wonder if Jesus cares about our stuff, 
that seems like the kind of stuff we shouldn't struggle with. And it almost makes it doubly difficult to bring it to Him because it feels like we should be better than this. We shouldn't be struggling with this kind of stuff. There are so many people with so many worse problems. And yet, I find it difficult to get through the day without crippling anxiety. And Jesus cares about that and about you too. Let's look at what he says in Matthew chapter 6. Start at verse 25. And it's on your paper there. This is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love this passage. You get the heart of Jesus, the pastoral counselor, the mighty counselor, as Isaiah promised the Messiah would be in this passage. Let's go to him in prayer before we get into this passage. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for these words. These words that seem to address kind of a small problem in light of all the issues. Even in this day, when the Romans occupied Israel. And so many people thought that until they were removed, your kingdom could never come. You take time to speak to ordinary worry and anxiousness. Pray, Lord, that tonight, as we hear your heart through these words, that you would Speak peace and comfort and challenge to those who need to hear it. Us, little faith ones, we ask that you send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. That O ye of little faith is literally little faith ones. But it's tender. It's not shaming. This is a very tender passage, isn't it? Because anxiety, like I say, it's a real problem that Jesus cares about. Now, some people maybe have grown up in a church where they always hear about how much Jesus cares, 
so much so that he almost seems to be like your personal valet, you know, like he's like your personal servant just to make sure that you have a happy life and he cares about any time you stub your toe or have a hangnail, you know, or can't get dates, like you just go to Jesus and he helps you. Um, and then, then you might come to realize like the world is bigger than just me and my little problems and my little, you know, neuroses and gosh, Jesus doesn't have time for me. Wherever you're at on that scale, here's the thing. Jesus cares about the big issues. He cares about the big issues. He cares about your personal issues as well. And He cares about the ordinary problems of ordinary people. Most of His ministry is spent in a little fishing village area where archaeologists, Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the message, says this, archaeologists have dug up this place, Capernaum, which is where Jesus spent most of his time in his public ministry, most of his life. The two things that they found in Capernaum, archaeologists, the two main things, fish hooks and coins. It was not an important place. It was a fishing village, and they had you know, traders and whatnot. That's where Jesus loved to hang out. It kind of confounded the religious people of his day. They loved to hang out with impressive people. They loved to invite impressive people to their parties. They were always trying to get into a higher and higher social circle. And they didn't quite understand Jesus who wanted to eat with sinners and tax collectors, sit down and talk to normal people and talk to them about issues like anxiousness. Now in this day and age, like you couldn't necessarily count on having your next meal. You remember at times when people came to hear Jesus, they didn't even have food to eat. You remember one time he had to multiply fishes and loaves so that the people that came to hear him could eat? This is not a day and age where everybody had enough to eat, where everybody could be assured of having even the basic necessities. And Jesus cares about that. Jesus doesn't just care about it, Jesus understood it. At one point he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And do you remember when he was crucified? His single possession that they had to cast lots for, the soldiers, was his cloak. Jesus knew what it was like to be an ordinary, normal person. And he knew the ordinary, normal issues that people struggle with, and he cared about it. And he cares about this problem in our day, too. Now, in some ways, you might argue that there are cultural factors that play into why anxiety is such a crippling issue in our day. I think that's true. I do think that perfectionism is more and more of a problem. At one level, particularly if you're like a musician or an athlete, you have to possess and pursue a certain degree of perfectionism in your skill and your craft, but then unfortunately it comes over into every area of life where we feel like my worth is based on how well I do things. And as David Brooks, the columnist that I, that I read, he, he talks in one of his books, Bobo's in Paradise. He says, for a lot of young people today, life is a continual aptitude test. Everything you're doing is an opportunity for you to show why you matter or not. And that's hard. That brings a kind of pressure to normal, ordinary life that it wasn't meant to bear. Now, for some, for some, there can be a medical issue, you know? Some people have, you know, sort of brain chemistry issues that they're more prone to anxiety, OCD, worry, crippling kind of thing. So don't discount that. But I think for a lot of people, it's just sort of in the cultural air, and it's also 
connected to what's going on in our hearts. I think, you know, you could raise this other issue too. Even to live in a kind of social media world, you know, the studies that they've done sort of on people's kind of anxiety and depression and the relationship to how much time they spend on Facebook looking at other people's lives, you know? There's, you know, there, life for you is different than it was for me growing up in that regard. I only had to worry about impressing the people that I saw each day in person. I didn't have thousands of people potentially looking at everything I posted and every picture I got tagged in and evaluating me. It's a different world, right? But Jesus gets at a spiritual issue that I think is common in his day and in our day. He says this is a spiritual issue. It's not, you just can't blame it on the culture, though I certainly think there are some things that explain part of why this seems to be more crippling than it used to be. But Jesus, notice, connects this to what we think about our Father. He actually spends more time in this passage talking about the character of our Father than he does anything else. Yes, he says, don't worry. And I think a lot of people, particularly if they've grown up around Christians and in Christian church, they've probably known that you're not supposed to worry if you're a Christian. Jesus says, don't worry. But I think a lot of people that have grown up in church, a lot of people that have been Christians for a while, think that basically Jesus' attitude is, come on, suck it up. What do you have to worry about? Don't you appreciate all the things that I've done for you? Come on, what are you so worried about? And, and we think of Jesus saying, do not worry. But we forget that when you actually look at that passage in the Bible, he says, do not worry a couple times. But he spends like ten verses revealing the character of our Father. There must be a connection. There must be a reason that he does that. How does he help us? Why does he do this this way? Well, the first thing I want you to see is he reminds us of truth. Into the anxiety, into the worry, he doesn't just say, suck it up, don't worry. The Bible rarely, if ever, gives bare commands. just says, do this, don't do that. It's astonishing to me how many people who have maybe only known a little bit about Christianity, maybe they've understood it from other people, maybe they've been exposed to it a little bit, but if you ask them what Christianity is about, they will probably tell you they think it's about don't do this and don't do that. Even though the Bible rarely, if ever, gives bare commands. And so it is here. Jesus says, don't worry because. And it's what follows that because that's so important. He doesn't just say, don't worry. He says, because. And then he speaks truth. And he speaks truth that the people he's speaking to, in a sense, should already know. He makes reference to a guy named Solomon. right? He's speaking to people that know the Bible. Because Solomon's a character in the Bible. These people know the Bible. They know that they have a father. They know Isaiah 43. It's part of their Bible, what we just sang. But he still speaks truth to them. Because whenever worry and anxiety are taking over our life, it's connected to something we've forgotten about who God is and what he's done. And Jesus makes that connection. Do you see that? He says, don't worry, because remember what your father is like. 
Remember what your Father is like. This is an interesting question to ask yourself. What does your anxiety, what does your fear, what does your anger reveal about what you really think God is like? I mean, we may say, I believe God is good, and I believe God is powerful. What does your anxiety reveal about what you really believe? And I don't say that to shame you, but I say that because it's important that we be honest about what's really going on in our lives. Uh, a friend of mine described you know, most people <laughs> as being like ducks. You ever seen a duck swimming in a pond? So smooth and graceful. That's just above the surface. <laughs> Underneath the surface, they're paddling like crazy. And that's what a lot of us are like. On the surface... Seems like everything's smooth. Seems like we've got it together. But if anybody knew what was going on beneath the surface, we're paddling like crazy. And we're wondering if anybody knows or if anybody cares. And here's what I have to tell you tonight. Jesus knows you're not fooling Him. And He cares. He cares. And He speaks into this and He says, remember what your Father is like. But he also shows us the inadequacy of what we're trusting in instead of God. See, here's the thing. You can't doubt everything all at once. You have to stand somewhere. You are standing somewhere. There's something you're trusting in. The question is, is it solid? Is it reliable? And when it comes to this issue, it's not that you're just not trusting in God. If you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in something. And what Jesus says here, first of all, is worry is, in a sense, a false god. It's an alternative to trusting in God. It is a way of trusting in yourself. The way it works is this. You think, maybe not so consciously, but you think, if only I could figure this out, if only I could think about this, think through every possibility, and prepare for that, then I would be able to deal with this, and I would be able to deal with life. And so Jesus says, which of you thinks that by worrying, you can add even a single day to your life? You see what he's doing there? He's not being cruel, but he is exposing the foolishness of what we trust in. Worry is a way of trying to feel powerful when you're scared. It's a way of saying, if I just brood over this thing, focus on it, think about it, obsess over it, it'll be better. And here's the irony, is the one who broods over his people, as it says in Deuteronomy 32, like an eagle broods over his young is so far from our thoughts when we're brooding over the things that we're worried about. Uh, Martin Luther, who said some crazy things, but he had a lot of good things to say too. Uh, one used to regularly say to his right-hand man, a guy named Philip Melanchthon, he would, uh, Philip was really prone to worry. It was just kind of, some people like their temperament seems to just 
make them more prone to this. Other people's temperaments make them prone to other kinds of sins and struggles. But he loved to go up to Philip Melanchthon and say, put his hand on his shoulder and say, let Philip cease to rule the world today. (laughs) And that's what Jesus wants to say to you today. You don't need to rule the world today. You remember that quote I put up there by Alanis Morissette? Now, you can smile at it. I don't think you should smile or laugh at it. I think it's her serious attempt to grapple with the world. And in a sense, she's sort of turning her back on organized religion, which she sees as bondage. And particularly the idea of God, who judges everything you do, she sees that as bondage. And she talks about how she finally came to believe that God doesn't judge. He, she, or it, she says, merely notes what we do, but doesn't judge us. And she says, once I realize that, I realize that it put the onus on me, that we're the ones who are making our reality. Now what I would say to her is, that's a pretty perceptive analysis of what most people do and don't realize they're even doing it. They're feeling anxious, but they don't realize that so much of their anxiety is because they've tried to take on the weight of the world. They've tried to say, I can be God. I can rule the world today. And I can rule it better than God. Especially if I have enough time to think about it and plan it perfectly. I would say to her, Gosh, that must be exhausting. Because you weren't made for that. And if you take on a job that you can't possibly do, it's like death. Now some of you, I say this a lot, but you know, college is a time where often you're working jobs, maybe in the summer, maybe even now, that are way beneath your skills and your gifts. But you just have to make some extra money. I worked, you know, the worst job ever. I worked at Roy Rogers Roast Beef Restaurant, like two hours a day. They brought me in only to make French fries and then to clean the fryer and risk being scalded by hot grease. Two hours a day. My dad finally said, this is ridiculous. You need to just quit. Like, sometimes, like those kind of jobs are like horrible and you're just bored stiff. But listen, that's so much better than being put in a job where you know that you can't possibly do what's expected of you. Right? And whenever you try to rule the world, you're taking on a job that you weren't made for. And I know deep down you know it, and you start worrying about it. But it doesn't matter how much you worry. You can't add a single day to your life, Jesus says. And he says that not to shame you, but to set you free. What you're trying to do will never work. You can't do it. You can't change the future. You can't add a day to your life. As a matter of fact, we know medical studies have proved that worry actually shortens your life. So not only does it not work, it actually makes things worse. The more you think about things, trying to gain control and peace, the more anxious and the more anxious and the more anxious you become. Worry doesn't help you get peace and control. And Jesus uses this word. He says, the pagans run after all these things. That implies desperation. But he says, you people are living like that. 
I don't know what you think pagans live like. You may think they have like wild, crazy parties. That's how pagans live. Jesus says pagans are people that try to take care of life on their own. And they're worn out and exhausted running after taking care of all the things they think they need rather than trusting God. And I think a lot of times Christians think they're so far removed from those people, those pagans. But Jesus says, no, you're them. You're them, you little faith ones. You're them. You're running after all these things, right? Isaiah 30, 15 shows us something about this as well. I know the girls on Monday nights have been studying the book of Isaiah. Man, I would love for you all to go and be able to be part of that. Um, If you're not doing anything on Monday night, girls, you should really go to that because Isaiah is so great. And this is one of my favorite passages. It's in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. It's on the bottom of your sheet. God calls out to His people and says, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You wouldn't rest. You wouldn't trust. And so then He talks about how if you won't trust, your life will be marked by irrational fear. And he uses a really graphic image for that. A thousand will flee at the sight of one. He's talking about military armies here. He's saying, when you're not trusting in God and you're not resting in Him, the Sovereign One, you're not the Sovereign One, you're the little faith one. He's the Sovereign One. And when you're not resting in Him then your life will be marked by irrational fear. Even if you have an army of a thousand, one soldier shows up and you all run. It's a graphic picture of irrational fear. The things that you put your hope in, you know can't really bear the weight of it, and then you get more and more and more and more anxious. You redouble your effort. But Jesus says, rest. Remember who your Father is is. And like I said, he spends more time talking about the character of the Father than he does even saying don't worry. So what does he teach us about the Father? What do we need to remember and rejoice in tonight? Because it's not just remember like merely cognitive remembering. It's remember and rejoice in it. Brood on the character of your Father rather than your worries until it begins to warm your heart and help you let go of the things that you're trying to control. I love verse 26. Look at the birds. Uh, Oh, I wrote down the wrong verse. That's not the right verse. Um, Your Father knows that you need them. Where's that? Oh yeah, it's verse 32. I don't know how I missed that. Um, It says the pagans run after all these things, and I love this part. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Sometimes I think what our anxiety is saying that we believe about God is we believe He doesn't really know what I need. We believe He doesn't really know what I need. I need to tell Him. I need to tell Him over and over and over again. There is sort of, there's almost like a a, a very close connection between worry and worship. When when you worry over something, you obsess over it, 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 it's almost like you're sort of worshiping 
There's such a focus on this thing. And here's what you need to know to be able to let go. Your Heavenly Father knows you need this stuff. God is not saying to you, you need to be some like superhuman being who doesn't have needs. That the kind of people I'm looking for to be part of my kingdom are people that don't have needs. Needy people need not apply. Jesus has never said that. No. As a matter of fact, He taught His people how to pray right before this. He said, pray, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches His people that you should be in the posture of being daily dependent upon Him for even basic things. The point of being a Christian and even growing as a Christian is not to be so strong that you don't need Him anymore. It's to be more and more dependent because that's what He made you for. It's what He made you for. Your Father knows you need these things. You don't have to worry about whether or not He knows you need them. And this is doubly so once Jesus took on human flesh and came and lived among us. He got hungry. He had nowhere to sleep at times. He understood all of the things people worry about. He took it and experienced it. He knows, not even just in abstract, but even in experience. Not only that, he knows that each day has enough trouble of its own. Look at verse 34. I love this. Don't worry about tomorrow because, for, tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So again, Jesus doesn't ask us to be superhuman people who don't have needs, and He doesn't ask us to be people who pretend that the world doesn't have trouble. Jesus never will ask you to say, now that I've become a Christian, I need to think that all these things that I used to think were bad and hard in my life aren't hard anymore. And all this stuff that's hard in the world, well, if I'm a Christian, I'm just supposed to not think about it or worry about it anymore. No, Jesus never says that. As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, He says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Jesus and His kingdom and His grace do not mean that trouble isn't real and present with you every day. Jesus knows that. He knows that. Your Father knows that. How much of your anxiety comes from trying to pretend that you're invincible and that you can't be hurt? I I would hazard a guess a lot of it. There's the trouble, and then there's you trying to portray that you're handling it well. And then worrying about whether you're handling it well. And afraid that somebody might notice that you're not handling it as well as you could. And you just long for even one or two friends that you can be honest and real with. But then you're worried that they might betray you or get tired of you, you know, moaning and complaining all the time. Like it doesn't stop. The only way it stops, the only way this sort of catch-22 breaks is if you remember and rejoice in the character of your Father. He knows that you need these things, and He knows that each day has trouble for its own, right? But He also knows you're not up to the task of being God. (laughs) He knows that. The question is, do you know that? One of my favorite verses to remind myself of and to remind other people of is in Psalm 103, where it says, 
that God knows our frame. That means who we are, our being, and He remembers that we are dust. Oh, we can be so proud of ourselves and our accomplishments. But God says, you know, you're dust that I breathe new life into. <laughs> remember that. Remember that, not so, just so you'll be humbled, but remember that so you would be set free. So much of our anxiety is connected to us not embracing our finiteness. You can't do everything. One of the great lies that we tell children is you can do whatever you want as long as you work hard enough and set your heart towards it. It's not true. It's not true. And the sooner you realize that, the better. Because so much of your bondage is you feeling like you have to do things that you can't possibly do. You're finite. The Lord remembers that you're dust. He doesn't expect you to be God. He doesn't want you to be God. But do you remember that? And then your father knows that you need help in setting priorities. It is interesting to think about why does Jesus say, seek first the kingdom in this context? Like the, there, it's almost like there's two verses in this section that people have probably heard. Don't worry, don't be anxious, and then seek first the kingdom. But they go together. How do they go together? Why do they go together? I think what's interesting to think about is consider this. When Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you, is he implying that your worry is connected to seeking another righteousness. Now what is righteousness? That's a kind of a Christian word that people throw around. Righteousness means being beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything required to earn his smile. You know, sometimes we talk about how when you become a Christian, you get forgiven. And that's true, and that's a beautiful thing, but it's only half of the good news that Christianity proclaims. Because you don't just get all the bad stuff wiped away and taken off your record so that you can start again. You actually get credit for the way Jesus lived. Do you know who wasn't anxious? Jesus. Do you know who was asleep in the boat? when the storm was about ready to capsize the boat, so much so that the disciples had to wake him up, Lord, don't you care? We're dying! And he's sleeping. Again, that's always, anxiety is always a way of saying, Lord, don't you care? You don't care. I know you don't care. So I better care doubly for both of us. Jesus was not anxious. And when you put your hope in him, God doesn't look at you as this pathetic, anxious worry wart. He looks at you like he looks at Jesus. And he says, enter into this rest that I've bought for you. I've done everything required. But I think so often our worry is connected to us feeling like we need to cover ourselves. We need to make ourselves better than ordinary people. We need to show that we really are serious or we really are good, we really are valuable. Don Miller in one of his books talks about 
how when he was in school, they had some like kind of value clarifications um, project, and they had to describe why if they were in a lifeboat with like a pregnant mom and a doctor and a lawyer and one person needed to be thrown out of the lifeboat, they had to sort of explain who would get thrown out and why and then why would you be allowed to stay? And he says basically in life, we're always like in that situation wherever we're with people, we're basically trying to prove to them that we should be in the lifeboat. And it's pretty hard to make that argument against the pregnant mom and the doctor. It's easy to make that argument against the lawyer. And so sometimes we surround ourselves with people that we consider lawyers, you know, kind of people below us so that it's easy to feel better about ourselves. Or maybe we surround ourselves with people that we really look up to, but then secretly in our heart we cut them down, bring them down so that we feel like we measure up. We do this kind of stuff, right? And maybe what Jesus is saying here is there's a connection between your worry and where you're trying to find righteousness, where you're trying to find what it is that's going to make you feel valuable and beautiful. Because we tend to worry most about those kind of ultimate things. Oh, I know we might worry about a test or something, but what we're really worrying is about what will happen, what will say about us to us and to others and even to God when we don't perform the way we need to. And into that, Jesus says, rest in repentance and rest is your salvation. And He says, come unto Me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. Your Father longs to be gracious to you. Your Father knows that you have needs, but your Father cares about you. You're so much more valuable than the flowers and the grass. Remember that. Rejoice in that. Jesus doesn't just, didn't just speak these words. He died for this. Jesus died because He would rather die than live without you. Oh, are you not more valuable than the grass and the flowers? So don't worry. Seek first His righteousness. Receive it as the free gift that it is. Nothing you can earn can get it. Nothing you can do can get it. But it comes to you, little faith ones, who say, Jesus, I want to just rest. I want to repent. So many people think repentance is like this kind of performance you have to do where you have to convince God that you really are sorry about your sins and you won't do it again. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is saying, oh, I was a fool. I thought that I could take care of my life and that I could impress you. I just need to collapse on your grace and rest. Isaiah says repentance is rest. It's not the next religious duty you need to do. Would you rest? Would you come to the one who says, Come unto me, all you are heavy and weary laden. That's not just a verse for becoming a Christian, by the way. That's a verse for those who are Christians here tonight who are filled with worry and anxiety. Rest. Rest in the fact that your Father knows your needs. He knows the troubles. He cares for you. Let's pray together.